Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation Capital, a pre-seed venture firm. We invest in amazing technical teams in New York at the infancy of an idea. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. Season three of Origins is sponsored by eShares and Silicon Valley Bank. We're really excited about both companies as sponsors because we actually use and love their products. We use eShares VC product at Notation, and we also recommend the eShares product to all of the startups that we work with. But something you might not know about eShares is that they have a product specifically for LPs as well. eShares allows LPs to sign, send, and store K1s, securely manage capital calls, review investment KPIs, and more. If you want to learn more about eShares for LPs, go to get.eshares.inc.com slash LP. This season is also sponsored by our close friends at Silicon Valley Bank. SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. Learn more about Silicon Valley Bank services at svb.com. Mike Larson is a managing director at the global investment firm Cambridge Associates, based in Boston. Mike has been at CA for 10 years and works with endowments, foundations, and other large institutional investors on their private investment programs, particularly focused on venture capital. Mike Larson, thanks for thanks for being here with us today. Um, I'm really excited to have you. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Um, we have heard a lot about Cambridge Associates actually on this podcast um, over uh, over the last couple of years. Um, and so I'm excited to actually dig in with you and figure out what the firm actually does. <laughs> Who is Cambridge Associates? Exactly. Um, but um, but first, would love just the, the two minutes on um, on your background. On my background. So I uh, got out of college in 1999. Um, dot com height <laughs> exactly if you could fog a mirror you could get a job in the tech right. economy in <laughs> 99 and so i got out and oddly enough i i knew i didn't want to be a consultant and i didn't want to be an investment banker but uh i we had a friend of the family who was a venture capitalist and that was the first time i'd ever heard that word mm. and so i i went home and i opened up alta vista or whatever maybe right. it was a yahoo page right and i where was home uh, home, it was in uh, Acton, Massachusetts. Okay. So this is just about 45 minutes outside of Boston. And I did a search for venture capital. And I can't say I Googled it. And I found this firm. I cold called them. Mm-hmm. They said, and, and at the time I had interned for two summers in CRM software. So mm-hmm. I'd been around technology and I could speak at least fluently about one narrow category of enterprise right. software. So I cold called this firm called Boston Millennia Partners, asked if they were hiring at the analyst level. They said that they had just made a hire and they were all set. And I said, well, geez, you only have one analyst and you have five partners. Right. Uh, that doesn't sound like a good model. Right. I could get more leverage. And so they said, well, tell us about your background. And I walked through, through my background. About a week later, I go in and I meet with the associate, then the principal, and then the first partner and the second. And by, you know, three hours later, I'd met with everyone at the firm. And I left feeling pretty good, like I'd made mm-hmm. a good impression. And 
uh, a week later, I'm driving to the beach and I get a call saying, "We, you know, you got it. Wow. When can you start? Wow. And I had, nice. I had booked a trip to Europe already to, <laughs> to go right. backpacking. And I said, well, I'd, if it's okay, uh, you know, I'll, uh, I, I could start Monday or I could take this trip and start, you know, a month from now. And they said, no, take your trip. So they, they were pretty... Uh, accommodating right. and uh and so i started and so by the time you got back the stock market had gone down by 70 <laughs> percent. no so i worked from 1999 until 2004 in venture capital and so i i often refer to it as the most rewarding nine months of my career mm. <laughs> because right. of the timing it was uh, you know, we were at the time investing in internet infrastructure like roll ISP rollups, for instance, right. uh, via networks. Um, you know, the the prior fund had invested in Vario. We had uh, uh, a healthcare practice too that was investing mostly at the intersection of healthcare and IT. And after the dot com, I mean, we, some great investments we had were iVillage and mm -hmm. Hot Jobs. Um, mm -hmm. But after the correction. We literally went from you know, trying to make you know put capital out to how do we how do we preserve the portfolio right. that we've built? We had just closed a four hundred and ten million dollar fund too. It was a big fund. We'd put already a good amount of capital to work, and so we had an exhibit at the time that measured the days of cash mm. held at each portfolio company, mm. and it was just an exercise in triage, figuring right. out where to. You know where we, we need to bridge to the next round. Right. How would that work? Um, and also because there were fewer tech opportunities for us at that time, we the firm pivoted largely into healthcare. Mm -hmm. So we brought on um, two seasoned healthcare um, partners, mm -hmm. and they got to work investing um, more broadly away from healthcare IT and into things like medical devices and right. early stage drug discovery. And so I did that really for the tail. You know, for the remaining time I was there. And, you know, I, I was not formally trained in any way in those, in those categories. I didn't right. have a science type degree. I didn't have 10 years of Genentech underneath my belt to give right. me the credibility to advance beyond where I was. So I was, I guess, a senior associate, um, you know, basically sourcing and helping, um, you know, do due diligence and structuring deals. Um, I went to business school. I spent um, the summer in between first and second year in Afghanistan doing economic development work. Wow. Uh, I graduated in 2006, um, was in dialogue with a lot of venture funds that you know are probably not the most systematic and organized when it comes to bringing in people. Um, and ultimately got uh, reconnected, reacquainted with a, a friend and classmate of mine who uh, had gone to Cambridge Associates. And at the time, I thought Cambridge Associates was a different kind of firm. I thought it was more about data. Right. And when I began to learn more about the firm and the role they were after, it, I made this huge connection. Cambridge is an investment firm. They build portfolios and right. they specialize, um, or they're particularly strong in building these alternative asset portfolios of, of private funds and hedge mm -hmm. funds and what have you. And it... I had a flashback to the LPAC meetings and the limited partner meetings where I used to have to present or um, right. provide analytics on the portfolio. Right. And back in 2000, I was always struck by the mixed degree of sophistication of the limited partners, the um, lack of understanding of mm. you know, what we're, our business is, um, and their, really their inability to ask the right questions 
to understand how we were doing. Right. And so I thought, wow, this is an opportunity where I can absolutely leverage all the the skills I built in terms of doing due diligence. But instead of doing that at the company level, where I'm you know, a centimeter wide and a mile deep, I can do that at the firm level. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of it's the same exercise. It's like investigative journalism. You want to get to know every knowable fact. Right. And, and so you're calling on the references that are provided, but you're also calling on a lot of the references, the founders, the co-investors, the other limited partners, what right. have you, um, that you're sourcing independently to get as, as complete a view. How would you describe Cambridge Associates at the 10,000 foot level today? Because data and analytics, I think of it as data analytics is one piece and research is one piece. And then there's this piece where you obviously buys lots of LPs as a way to build venture portfolios. So how do you kind of, how, how do you s- summarize like all the different types of things that Cambridge Associates does? Today? All right. Uh, simply put, we're a global investing firm, investment firm that services endowments and foundations, pensions and private clients. Okay. We do that. Um, in both the discretionary format where we take full control Mm -hmm. as well as a non-discretionary format. And so I work very often as a part of a team where depending on the client case, the client specific need, um, if it's a large endowment, for instance, I might be working with them as um, almost an extension of their investment office. Right. However, if it's maybe a, a midsize or a smaller foundation or endowment, they may be looking to fully outsource and I am the de facto head of private investments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it really depends on meeting the client where they need to be met. Right. And depending on their their specific objectives, in some cases, we work on the total portfolio and I have a counterpart that's a, a, a portfolio manager for the hedge funds. I'm the portfolio manager for the privates. Um, in some cases... They have that in-house and all they want is expertise in their private portfolio. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's even more narrow than that. And so uh, I work on a discretionary basis with a few clients where all I do is help them invest in venture capital specifically. Right. And even more specifically, they may have a portfolio that they've built over the years that's of largely established firms. Right. And they're looking to me to to find a way to usher in the next generation of firms into yep. the portfolio. Yep. And so I think a lot about things like portfolio construction, succession planning, just you know, how do I how do we design, construct, and oversee the portfolio in a, a way that positions it not to be successful just now, but to be successful for the next 10 years, right. the next 20 years. So you you said um you work with clients, mainly foundations, endowments, like you just mm-hmm. mentioned, and um and to private uh, families and others um, on a discretionary basis and a non-discretionary basis. Mm-hmm. Could you just um, explain the difference between those two quickly? Discretionary means they're effectively turning over the keys to us. Okay. And they that say means. we have $100 million that we want to mm-hmm. allocate to mm-hmm. venture or privates and go build us a portfolio. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And so uh, we, we're in charge of you know, what decisions get made or, um, you know, we're accountable for yep. everything. Um, a is that, lot, would you, would you liken that similar to the 
func- I don't mean to um, <laughs> compare this directly, yeah. similar to a function of a fund of funds in that you're not, you're not raising a fund to manage mm-hmm. the capital, but you're managing someone else's capital, you're making all the decisions, and you're getting paid uh, an advisory fee to do that. Functionally, you're correct. In okay. Our job then would be in portfolio construction, manager mm-hmm. selection, and mm-hmm. finding the right mix mm-hmm. that's a fit with the client. Yep. Um, the big differences are one, you know, clients have different risks, return uh, objectives, they have different uh, tolerances. And so, uh, you know, a fund of funds can achieve access for a client, but it's really a one size fits everyone solution. Right. Um, right. In As our in case, like yeah. their mandate might be yeah. like, uh, super small micro emerging manager funds in an area and that's their mandate to go invest in as a fund of funds and that's the stuff mm-hmm. that they're going to pick is that right yeah so that, it, it, that is right i think um well one one big difference is that every portfolio is tailor-made to fit the client right and so um that's with big. ca that's big yeah. exactly and and then another big difference is that a fund of funds um and you know i i have great respect for some of the work that these fund of funds do um they have their own structure that sits atop the gp fee and carry structure as in they also take fees and carry exactly right, right. and so hypothetically if uh if a client invests uh, if a client comes to us and says, we'd love you to build a venture capital portfolio, we will do that. But ultimately, they are the owners of those relationships. And so if they decide okay. to move in a different direction right. someday, or heaven forbid that they, they decide to you know, move wholesale away from it and they need to do a secondary sale, they actually have direct relationships Yep. Um, without that added sort of as in you're there as an advisor you're helpful you obviously know all the gps but ultimately Mm -hmm. there's a direct relationship between the endowment and foundation and the fund manager yes yes now there's more they can be a click removed if if it's a discretionary mandate because chances are they will not have met them yeah but if it's if it's a non-discretionary client then um you know i think it's a contact sport we want to get them in front of the GPs that are the right yeah, ones to right. tell their story. Right. Because that, I, in my mind, that makes the biggest difference for everyone. The, the, the client has greater conviction because they've looked in the eyes of the GP, they've heard the story, mm-hmm. and they've, they've made that conscious decision mm-hmm. to say, wow, um, thank you for making this connection. Right. This, is, this, is, this is a really interesting group. And we can see the, the role that this will play in the portfolio. Um, and two, the, the GP, I think, values knowing who their client is, right. knowing who the end, who the, who the ultimate source of capital is. Well, knowing who the ultimate source is, but also knowing that if they hit a three X or a five X on that fund, knowing where it's going to go. Right. And so right. being able right. to say, wow, it feels, it feels good to make a return for that endowment or foundation or, or yeah. you know, a, a pension fund. It's good to know that, you know, this return will help, you know, that rail worker, <laughs> and, you, know, yeah. you know, retire better, that sort of thing. So, so unlike a fund of funds, Cambridge Associates also wouldn't charge carry, correct? We would not. You're an, you're an ad, uh, investment firm advisor and you charge 
for your time and 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 advice. We're, Is that correct? We're, we're an investment firm, and it's 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 partly based on the amount of assets and partly okay. based on the commitment, the level of commitment activity. Yep. And so, yep. um, you know, an, an endowment that's deploying a hundred million a year into alternative assets may, you know, would obviously have a different schedule of than a you know small endowment or foundation committing you know a tenth of that. Right. Um, non discretionary. I'm guessing means that the client, let's say foundation mm -hmm. X um, has a bit more input in terms of the the portfolio that you're building for them. They, they do. Not input, but maybe some uh, higher degree of decision-making. They do. And so a, a good example would be a client of mine who I'll see in September. I have four funds um, most of which I think, th I think three of which are already in the portfolio where, you know, the manager's coming back to market and raising a new fund. Yep. We are going to execute those re-ups and the process is I will bring those to the investment committee. Right. I will present them. Right. The investment committee will then approve, which, and that, that mechanism doesn't exist in the discretionary world. Right. Um, but it's it's quasi discretionary in the sense that it's very rare that an investment committee would you know hire us for our expertise and hire us <laughs> right. with confidence right. and then shoot down right All our recommendations uh, you know, exactly our ideas right. so right um, which helps because for a manager if so much of what a, a venture fund is trying to do in fundraising is figure out their capital formation right. Mm -hmm. They want to know. Okay, we're raising 150 million. Our existing LPs are soft circling 100. Where's mm -hmm. that other 50 going to come from? And mm -hmm. so, if if we can have a good, I guess, uh, a relationship with our clients and a good credibility, such that if we say we're going to do something to the manager, we can get it done, and right. um, they can they can maybe make a, a harder circle on that amount right. of capital. Let me ask you a question to switch to the. Um yeah. The VC side for a second. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious what the process is for you diligencing managers um, to recommend to your clients who are the LPs. Um, and I asked that question, we can maybe go through a couple couple sub-questions, but um, you know, one, just like how, how do VCs approach you? Are they approaching you and pitching you about their next fund? Are they... Do you typically meet managers around when, I assume, when, around when they're fundraising? I find that the best time to catch a manager for a very candid dialogue is when they're not fundraising at all. Right. And so right. I'm speaking with uh, a, a number of firms this week, for instance, that are likely not going to raise until 2018. Right. So consider them update meetings. In this case, we're hearing about changes to the team, additions to the team. We're talking about progress being made in the portfolio, how performance has mm -hmm. evolved. Um, but getting back to your question around, you know, if, if, if you're a GP out there and you're raising your first fund, I think reaching out to Cambridge Associates is a, is a, is a good first step because, yeah. uh, Ultimately, if you're thinking critically about the type of firm you want to build and the capital formation around it, you'll want to have sophisticated limited partners and you'll want to have a number of them. And so that's something that sits in our 
client base. We have the, some of the most blue chip, right? You know, university endowments and foundations, right. and you name it. Um, is but it, they is come. They come sometimes directly to us, and sometimes right. they meet with an institution who they don't even know works with us. And the institution says, "This is a great meeting. I we work with CA, and so we'd like you to meet with CA so that they can, yep, you know, begin a, a more you know, yep. thorough vetting process. We meet on the venture f- front. We meet with about six hundred managers a year." And we're constant. That's basically the top of a funnel yep. that gets winnowed down to as few as you know, fifty opportunities, give or take, that we might go the distance on. You know, conduct do, full due diligence, mm-hmm. and then be in a position to put into client portfolios. And so, you know, first-time funds. I'd say the bar is very high. Right now, there's a difference between a first-time fund and a first-time manager. Yep. First-time fund could be founded by two seasoned ex Sequoia VCs. Uh, you name that, it, yeah, you yeah. name it. And and so you can underwrite that because you have an attributable track record and you know their history. Yep. You, you, off off the top of your head, you know 20 people you could reference on them. Um, you can get attributable um, mm-hmm. you know, numbers from their prior firms if they're if they left in an affable way. And, and so that is uh, I mean, far easier to get comfortable with and quickly than a, a group that's maybe a former founder, a former operator. Right. And all of the, you know, operating and entrepreneurial credibility in the world, but not the selection intuition, not the proven track record of actually putting capital to work behind founders and, you know, let alone bringing them all the way through to uh, a realization event. Yep. I've found that um, at least as when we've raised funds, it's helpful to understand the objectives of like the specific LP that we're talking to. Mm-hmm. So how do you position when you're meeting with a VC, like who your capital sources are, right? Because they they are very diverse in lots of ways. And they, so is it, if you found that it's challenging for VCs when they tell you about what they do and their story um, in that, you might represent very different sources of capital, or is it just the VC has to rely that you'll get them to the right place? It's funny. It's important to remember that we have one revenue source only, and that's our clients. And so we serve our clients, and that you know are the the, the LPs, the LPs. We yeah. serve the LP, right? Yeah. And so because we serve the LP and not the manager. We're not necessarily in the business of satisfying the manager's every whim or, <laughs> right. well, you know. Right. But we do use information from that manager. And so, um, you know, we'll end a meeting with a group that seems very promising and ask the question, tell us about access. Do you expect mm-hmm. to have access for new limited partners? Do you have, you know, maybe a, a preference? And so the preference might be, you know, we're all U.S., Right, and we have been talking internally about globally diversifying our LP base, and mm-hmm. so if you share with us uh, a list of interested institutions, we're probably going to favor the ex-US ones, mm-hmm. or or you know we've got a lot of concentration on a few family offices, and, and we'd love to move in the direction of endowments and foundations. Right. And so it's valuable information for us because maybe we'll save. Those client the the client types that aren't explicitly of interest to the GP, we'll save them the time from getting 
uh, enthusiastic about a right. firm where access is lower likely right likelihood. How do you think about, um, or what are some of the key attributes, obviously, that you look yeah. for in managers, whether that are emerging or established? Um, and I know that uh, data and, mm -hmm. and research is a big part of the DNA of, of CA. Um, and so we'll be curious to also understand how you use that to affect yeah, sure. analysis. So ultimately it comes down to the people, the process and the performance. And the performance is tricky in venture because it's rare right. that you have this fully baked track record that's tidy and easy yeah. to analyze. Yeah. Um, but let's start with the people. What are their backgrounds? Do they have the domain expertise to make them credible? Um, have, do they have the investment expertise that we can then measure the success yep. of? How long have they been working together? And when we sit opposite them in either a manager meeting at a CA office or on site during our DD process, do we sense that there's a, an appropriate level of cohesion or mm -hmm. is this just a newly formed constellation of personalities that may fail to gel and right. may ultimately break up? Right. Right. Here's time. That's that's probably the number one risk we face when we're looking at a first time fun is organizational. Mm -hmm. So we'll, are these guys? Yeah, are exactly. We're gonna like each other. Hold together. You know, did right. they meet? Did they meet six months ago and just decide? Mm -hmm. Hey, <laughs> yeah, I yeah. Your style. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's just have a right. fling and right. <laughs> start a fun together, right. as opposed to two people that have co-invested over the past decade. They've yeah. sat on boards together. They've been in the trenches together. They yeah. they philosophically align themselves well. And, um, or, or even better yet, they both worked together at the same firm and they decided that where that firm had grown to yeah. was no longer what interested them and they wanted to start fresh mm -hmm. with a smaller pool of capital. That's like the, that's one of the most ideal situations because then there's, you can really de-risk the whole proposition from an yep. organizational yep. standpoint. And then the process. That sounds familiar, how are, by the way, <laughs> my partner and I. So um, on the process front, how how do they think about how do they think about investing? What is yep. their philosophy? How do they represent that in, in what they do in the portfolio? How do they source that? The process by which decisions are made mm -hmm. is important. So knowing who who really you know, how the decision process is engineered internally. Do they have an investment committee? Are, you know, it, does one veto kill a deal? Yep. Um, that was a that was something that I think caught a lot of firms by surprise is um, there were victims of groupthink going into the financial crisis and deals just had this natural inertia around them, mm. even though they weren't great deals because people didn't want to be the person that killed, you know, partner right. X's deal. right. Um, and then on the performance front, this is where uh, a lot of the data comes in handy, which is we've been tracking in venture capital alone, we have data on nearly 1400 funds. So the performance data, data, like historical perform, perform, portfolio. Perform, performance data down to the portfolio company wow. where we know, um, we know the rounds that they invested in. We know the partner who was right. championing the deal. Um, and so and that is, is that a, because that's a, that every time you go through the diligence process with a manager, they're obviously part of that is it's, is it's, understanding it's, what their data is, and you yeah we call it we call that. it data recon, but basically right. it's reconciling what the manager has provided us 
to you know fact. So right. so this is really critical um, on a few fronts. So it's critical during uh, the due diligence process because we want to know of the team that sits in that fund today, what is the career multiple, money multiple of each partner? Mm-hmm. Because that matters. Mm-hmm. And it, it can matter in that conversation when you ask them, well, tell us what, what does it mean to, to become a promoted you know, general partner in the fund? And you can see whether they've adhered to a pretty high, high standard right. around return multiple right. and, and, and performance, or if they haven't. So if you have a partnership of experienced VCs and their career multiple is not at all or not remotely venture-like or not even in line with their gross return target, then that's that would raise a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also important when you think about in between fundraises, let's say a partner leaves and the manager says, well, uh, you know, it's a shame that so-and-so left. We'll miss him or her. But the, um, you know, we're still very well positioned to execute the strategy. Right. Well, if we know the performance of that specific partner and what just walked out the door and can recalibrate that, it's very powerful information to have because yep. it's going. It, it can inform our conviction. Yep. Um, for for going into the next fund, and so, yep. um, you know, sometimes departures are voluntary, sometimes they're involuntary, and the most thoughtful firms are are very careful about you know making sure they maintain the talent that they want mm-hmm. to maintain. Another data piece that we look at, for instance, yeah. is just how well that firm is doing compared to peers. Right. And so, because each time we're doing a due diligence, we're really understanding every possible measurable aspect of the fund. Yep. We could say, we could build an analysis and say, look at the average, look at the average investment size that they've deployed um, over the last 10 years. If the average investment size was steadily at $5 million and suddenly ballooned to 25, mm-hmm. that's strategy drift. Yep. If the performance historically has been most promising when a manager is invested at the series A and stuck to its knitting because that's what they're best at. When that the latest fund that they've invested is largely in the B and C rounds or some other stage, then that, then it's 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 they're less proven doing that. And yep. so that 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 raises flags. And yep. so we can it's it's the 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 data and the statistics we're capturing are in a way our early warning sign of of when managers begin to change yep and invariably they all most yep. most will begin to change and if they change thoughtfully and gradually performance can be upheld if they change you know stripes mid-fund that's when right uh, things tend There's to, some tend to go wrong yeah um so you probably have a better perspective than maybe anyone we've had on the show in terms of um just how much money is now coming into the venture asset class. I imagine over the last 10 years, um, there's a lot more interest today from institutions around the world to uh, invest in venture than maybe was five years ago or seven years ago, 10 years ago. Um, How do you think about that and how do you advise clients around that and how do you think that um, uh, that might affect venture over the next five or 10 years? So, at CA, we're all investment historians in a way. Right. So we we study these asset classes and we're looking at these numbers as they come out effectively quarterly. Right. But we also have a lot of historical context. And so having lived through it, um, 
I'm very aware of what 2000, mm-hmm. um, what happened in 2000. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for those um, younger people <laughs> listening, right. 2000 was uh, uh, roughly a uh, hundred and, you know, it was, it was north of a hundred billion dollars raised that year in, in okay. the asset class. People, estimates are around 106 billion. That probably doesn't capture non-institutional dollars that yep. were flowing into it. That's, that's, and so to put that in perspective, that's VCs that year raised more than a hundred billion. Yes, more than a hundred billion. And so um, to put it in other terms, that was north of a percent of US GDP right. in 2000. It was a record year far and away for the asset class. Uh, there was a record number of, I guess, firms formed. Yep. Um, and thinking about it a different way, on a constant dollar analysis, probably talking close to $160 billion in 2017 dollars. Right. right. So that's unique. Right. And I call it the echo because you have institutional investors looking at the leading endowments just having these runaway successes, runaway mm-hmm. tech IPOs that are are just that are just flush. Yeah, um, and they say we want that. We we want more exposure to that. And so you see high venture capitals like the top performing asset class of all alternative asset classes going into ninety seven, ninety eight, ninety nine. Right. And so seeing that, everyone begins. You know, a lot of institutions and, and newer entrants chase that. Yep, we're nowhere near how bad that that got in 2000 in, in a few dimensions. We're nowhere near that bad in terms of, if you look at the S&P uh, you know, tech index and where PE multiples had moved to back then mm-hmm. versus today, we're nowhere near that in terms of the constant dollar analysis to today's dollars and fundraising. Mm-hmm. Um, but what what's unique about today is that it's, it's stratified. You have a massive amount of new capital forming at the extreme ends of the asset class. Right. And so you have seed funds and angels and super angels that are really difficult to track, mm-hmm. frankly, because not all of them are really institutional. Yep. And uh, and so they're coming in at the seed stages. And that's where you see these numbers, like 350, 400 new seed funds. It's just, yep. It's, it's overwhelming. But they're small. Yeah, exactly. They but they're small. small. But they're yeah. small. Um, and then on the on the far far end, you have uh, and so these are the the ultralates, um, yep. ultralate stage uh, sources that are completely non traditional entrants, not non traditional like a corporate venture capital unit because that's actually semi traditional. Right. I'm talking about sovereign wealth funds, yep. hedge funds, mutual funds, um, bigger sources of yep. capital that are very hard to track pools. And so that's one of the exercises we're going through right now is just. Have, you know, calibrating just how big that shadow market of, right. of capital is. I mean, if you include SoftBank's Vision Fund, right? I mean, that's a hundred billion dollars right there. It's a hundred <laughs> billion right there with a like a, basically an unconstrained mandate, yeah. right? Yeah. So um, you have these two competing, um, not competing because they're sort of at different ends of the spectrum, but you have these two non-traditional waves coming in, and all at the same time when. The, the costs of starting a company because of AWS and mm-hmm. uh, you know, the lack of you know, need for all the, the, the old infrastructure that yep. was required, the costs of starting a company have fallen anywhere from 100 to 1,000 fold, depending on yep. you know, whose research you, you, yep. you, you read. And we had so, Naval on this podcast uh, in the first season. I think he actually estimated it was probably a million, million X cheaper, something like that. That's game changing. 100,000 right? X, I forget what it was. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, um, you know, will will these will the non traditional entrants distort? Um, they already have. They've. I think it's created a new paradigm in the late stages of venture capital. Yep. I know maybe more people listening right now are focused on the early stage, but what's happened at the late stage is we we, we have this chart in our in our data that shows pre money valuations across early you know, mid-stage expansion and then late stage. Mm -hmm. Late stage, by the year 2015, late stage leaves our Y-axis entirely. <laughs> and right. when I talk about right. it at conferences, I say, a late stage, if it was captured, it'd be by the chandelier right. in the right. upper right hand, because right. it's, it's compared to historical standards, yeah. it's the highest it's ever been. And it's been up there for now, like four years. Yeah. And, so, and you're seeing, you're seeing, you know, it's under, even lately, you're seeing these companies go public, and their stock prices are lower than they were in lower the, than the and, last private capital right. in. Right. And so I think that is um, long term a good thing because it will rationalize eventually the uh, in terms of these the public market valuations coming down in terms I of think rationalizing I th the latest. I, I, you know, people are people are paying attention, um, right? And, and and you know, p you know, a lot of the guys. Um, in the industry that I follow on Twitter are posting, you know, oh, look at where this priced and series A, B, C, D, E. And, and you see that the cost per share and that penultimate round, you know, pre-IPO is, is, is the one that's underwater and sometimes right. by a healthy margin. Right. And so I think that that will have a correcting, mm -hmm. um, you know, aspect to it. Mm -hmm. yeah, the other thing is there's a, there's a massive queue right now for IPOs. Um, yep. I don't, not all of those companies are going to succeed in getting out. And yep. if they don't, it's possible that, uh, you know, there are late stage firms that could be beneficiaries of that because you've got companies that have committed, you know, to a fairly high burn and, you know, could ultimately be fundamentally sound businesses, but they're going to need more capital in and the public markets will be unable to deliver that. Yep. Um, yep. So how do you think about, so so given that, given that there seems to be, healthy capital markets at the super, super early stages of, of startup funding. And uh, there's obviously a ridiculous amount of money available at the very late stages, although maybe we'll see that correct in the next year. Um, does that mean there's, there's a significant opportunity for, for, for funds in the middle? I mean, I, I definitely think that, um, I think New York actually in particular would actually benefit from more series, like traditional series A funds where there seems to be less capital focused. So uh, a, a couple of thoughts. One is today's seed, the, the taxonomy keeps on shifting, yeah. right? Yeah. And so if seed rounds now are in some cases one to several million dollars, and that sounds a lot like yesterday's series A, a deal, yeah. right? And so I, I try not to pay too much attention to how people are branding their financing rounds because mm -hmm. a lot of that is just gaming. You know, it's the shell game of what are you going to call this to mm -hmm. continue to keep yourselves in the menu of that broader seed universe um, and to give someone the honor of leading the A when the A suddenly could be like the third or fourth round yep. Yep. of capital coming in. I'm still a big believer in the early stage. I, I, I think the, the math works very well for seed and, and series A stage focus funds. Um, there's certainly uh, a big fall off rate between those 
firms that are those companies that are getting back to the seed level and those that succeed in raising an A. Yep. And so if you're a, an A focused firm, you have an, I mean, the, the world is replete with seed backed companies for, with real, you know, 18 to 24 months of data for you to look at yeah. and underwrite and, and yeah. you know, consider. So I think, you know, I, I continue to recommend early stage over the, the, certainly the late and certainly the, the, the mm. ultra late stages. Mm. Um, and then, uh, you know, to your question more broadly about how we're, how we're thinking about it, the seed universe has become far more institutionalized in the last six years. Yeah. There's just more, there's more talent that's gravitated there. There's more, um, and there's more, I'd say, discipline yep. being brought there. Yep. So, you know, back in 2000 and, you know, you, you name it, seven to 2010, there were very few people that did that. And so the early returns in that category were, were smash, yep. you know, Terrific Extraordinary, returns. yeah. But today, I think the bar is is higher, and um, the f- the firms that are are looking more interesting, uh, they don't follow that old two people and a dog <laughs> rubric mm-hmm. there, and that, or one person and no dog. Mm-hmm. You're seeing people bring a lot more thought into how they're th- how they put together a firm focused on seed. Yep, and so that could include other resources that they're bringing to bear either in recruiting or go to market or they're, they're bringing more of a service industry approach to an area of investing that used to be very passive. Yep. And I think that's a good thing for the industry because it's going to, it's going to make those companies far more equipped to be thoughtful about how they raise capital and to be better positioned and be thinking about all the right KPIs that will make uh, make them palatable for early stage investors that are more traditional VCs. Yep. Yeah. What What is the best way for uh, for VCs and managers to to come tell their story to to Cambridge Associates? Obviously, I'm assume similar to other folks that are trying to get intros to VCs or LPs. As warm intros, I assume, is the best way to do it. Or just what I find is helpful is when um, a lot of a lot of the first time meetings that we take at CA with new managers are referrals coming from either clients who have met with them yep or other GPs who have worked with them and so it's not to say that we'll you know absent those two things we're just going to turn away a meeting right. um, but I think it helps having that additional endorsement just yep. because it, you know, uh, I mean, there are GPs that only once every three years say, hey, have you looked at so-and-so? Mm-hmm. What they're doing is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're, we're close with them and we think that they could be you know, something worth taking a look at. And so that certainly helps. Our um, our venture team is is, is led by uh, Teresa Heyer and Pete Meradian. Those are great people to, to ping to. Um, so uh, the meetings ultimately are formed by either people like me that run portfolios, um, people who run the asset classes, uh, the, the asset class teams at CA, or clients that you know, work with CA and refer things back to us. And so there's a few different avenues people can take. But um, if I was giving advice to someone, I'd say a referral certainly yep. would accelerate a response. What's the what's the um, what are some of the most exciting things about 
either the startup ecosystem or maybe the venture ecosystem today that um, is encouraging over the next five or 10 years, or even maybe some some alternative venture models that you guys are considering, whether it's AngelList or some of these scout funds, there's now a couple of these like kind of more decentralized venture funds coming to market. So one of the most encouraging things, I think, and this is again from that LP lens, yep. is that there's a, there's, there are too many myths about venture capital and those myths often scare people away. So one myth that's tried and true is that all of the returns in venture accrue to, you name it, the top five yep. or the top 10 most established firms and otherwise ugh, you don't want to touch the asset class. Yep. Our data says the opposite is true. Um, if you look at the past 20 years of returns and you rank order the top 10 funds in each given year, the, rep, the, the representation is roughly half and half between mm. new and emerging firms mm -hmm. and establishment. And so what's promising in that is that the establishment's typically hard to access. These new and emerging funds aren't. Right. You can build relationships. You can gain access to it. Right. And um, it helps inform a longer term view for people who are trying to approach the asset class and build a portfolio that's, that has succession right. factored in. Right. So, you know, an established firm is great, but will they reinvent themselves successfully every 10 years and remain relevant, remain a leader in, in cloud or mm. AI or mm. what have you? Maybe, maybe not. And so having um, younger firms uh, with hungry younger people that uh, have the right domain expertise, the right, maybe more relevant mm -hmm. entrepreneurial experience. So it, it's a completely different profile. If you're trying to uh, partner with a, a young 20 something founder, it's, I think the, um, the fit might be stronger and the, the case might be more compelling to partner with uh, a, a young venture partner who actually ran cloud Right. At, a, at, a, at, a, at a more recent company or, or, right. or is facing the same challenges that they're, they're facing. Um, so that's, uh, that's encouraging. I think the innovation and just the, the waves of it we're seeing right now, um, some people will say, geez, it feels like we're in 2000 again. And I, I, I don't agree with that. I mm -hmm. think we could just as well be in 1996, 1997 mm -hmm. again because of what's happening. Right. And so the how the world is changing how the you know back, back in back in 2000 gartner or whomever would put out these reports about how big internet shopping was going to become and right all the numbers just seem so made up and mm -hmm. who knows mm -hmm. today the amount of you see, you see the research. Like there are more smartphones than there are toothbrushes on the planet. Right. There are more. It's, there, there's a supercomputer in every pocket, and so the ability um, one, the TAM that new companies can address is massive, yeah. and two, the ex, like uh, if you compare the adoption rate of a company formed in 2010 to that of one formed in 2005. It's so dramatic that the, mm -hmm. the curves are so much steeper. Yep. And so I, I'm encouraged by that. And I think that, um, you know, if you, again, if you, if you speak with hundreds of GPs a year and you hear about what's in their pipeline and what interests them and what's around the corner, there's a lot to be 
excited about. And that's not just in technology, that's in, that's in early stage life sciences yep. and healthcare. And increasingly, um, I'd say in the past three years, it's been more pronounced, but we're seeing the, the intersection of powerful compute and data analytics with healthcare. Yeah. That's yeah. unlocking a whole nother another area that I think people thought might you know, there was a lot of promise when they sequenced the human genome back yeah. in the the ninety nine two thousand era that a lot of it was, was did not get realized. Well, I think we're on a, the cusp of, of something completely different where there's going to be more value to be unlocked, and so um, you don't have to look far for bright spots and for reasons to be enthusiastic about yeah. the asset class. Yep, yep. Well, we're psyched too, and. Um, I uh, really appreciate you spending the time with us today. It's been uh, it's been great. I feel like we've settled some of the unknowns around uh, Cambridge Associates as a firm, and, and um, so I think our our audience will appreciate it. Too. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Thank you. This podcast was created by Nick Charles and Alex Lines, partners at Notation Capital. Notation is a pre-seed venture capital firm. We invest in amazing technical teams in New York at the infancy of an idea. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. Thanks to eShares for sponsoring this episode. We use the product at Notation and recommend it to all the companies we work with. eShares also has a product specifically for LPs. eShares for LPs allows you to easily sign, send, and store K1s, securely manage capital calls, review your investment KPIs, and more. If you want to learn more about eShares for LPs, go to bit.ly.com slash eShares LP product. We'd also like to thank Silicon Valley Bank. At SVB, the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors, its experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the Silicon Valley Bank team for advice on strategic, operational, and tactical issues and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. If you liked this episode, please share and remember to tag it with hashtag OpenLP. We'd also like to thank Ben Glawe, who is our amazing audio engineer. You should work with him. You can find Ben on Twitter at visible underscore sound.